God showed the mother when I was bad sin. God showed the diaper one five eight. God showed the mother when I was bad sin. God showed the diaper one five eight. God showed the mother, showed the mother. God showed the mother, showed the mother. God showed the mother one five. God showed the mother when I was bad sin. God showed the diaper one five eight. God showed the mother when I was bad sin. God showed the diaper one five eight. God showed the mother, showed the mother. God showed the mother, showed the mother. God showed the mother one five. Well, good morning, everybody. It's a Monday morning. It's Thanksgiving week, so I know everyone's thinking about the law this morning. So I figured we'd talk about it. Listen, I know that this isn't for everyone. This is uh, for a lot of people really boring. But there's been a conversation going on for a while now in our online church Christian server um, on Discord, and the the conversations have been repeatedly about the Christian's relationship to the law of Moses. And so what I have set out to do over the next three days is to take Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to give you a three-part mini-series um, on the Mosaic law. Uh, because I think there's just a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of opinion. There's a lot of tradition uh, on both sides. There are people who say, ditch the law of Moses completely. There are other people who say, no, the law of Moses in its entirety, as at least as far as we can do, it still applies to the new covenant believer. And so I'm not going to tell you what I think right up front. Just today in this episode, we have to establish what the law of Moses is. And then in the next, you know, tomorrow, we can talk about, okay, how, what does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law? What does it mean that we are freed from the law? Is the law a bad thing? No, the law is a good thing. How do we make sense of that? And then the episode after that, we'll talk about, okay, how do we now function in relationship with the Mosaic law? Now that we've established what the law is. So, so we'll get to that, but we got to lay the groundwork. And I know this isn't for everyone, but I'm sure at one point, at some point, okay, you've wondered, what does it mean for me to be a Christian in relationship to the Mosaic law? Do I need to follow as much as I can? Do the dietary laws still apply to me? I'm sure you've come across people or had conversations with people that are, are about, yeah, you should keep the law um, and the dietary laws and Sabbath and the feasts and, and do everything you can as a new covenant believer because you're grafted into the heritage of Israel. And so if you haven't had these conversations yet, you will. And I just want to prepare you. I want to give you understanding. Uh, I want to do my best to, to clarify uh, first of all, what is the law of Moses? And I think even around that, it sounds like a very simple thing. Well, the commands, the instruction, the laws. Um, it, I'll explain why I think that's just a shallow understanding. There's a lot, there's something deeper going on when God gives the law. 
when he leads Israel into his ways and, and gives them what sets them apart from the pagan nations. Um, so the first question, we got to establish this before we get into even what the law is. How should we see the law in its entirety? How does that relate to salvation? Okay, that's the very first question we need to ask. And I think most of us are going to agree. Yeah, none of us are saying that the law of Moses saves us. None of us are saying that we need to do anything to earn salvation. None of us is saying that we have to work to earn our way into the kingdom. Right? None of us is saying that. But for those that might think otherwise, let me just prove to you why. I don't think the law of Moses saves and brings us into eternal life or gain, gives us access into the kingdom. Uh, Romans chapter 10 verse 4, it says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. In other words, Jesus signals the end of your working and striving and straining to get into the kingdom by your own efforts and moral goodness. You never could. We never could. The law of God exposes our inability. It doesn't give us the guidelines on how to get into the kingdom. You have to be perfect. So in one sense, sure, the law of God presents to you the perfect standard that we all fall short of to show you, you can't meet it. So enter Jesus, who is the, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who what? Who believes. When you believe, you now have righteousness in Christ. Verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on what? Based on the law. So Paul, looking back, at the Mosaic law, and a lot of people want to dismiss Paul because he seems to contradict a lot of the Old Testament. He's not. He's clarifying. He's revealing. Um, he's uncovering what Jesus came to show us, which is that the new covenant is going to be built on the old. But nonetheless, Paul looks back at, at Moses, right? The Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, and he says, yeah, the, he, he writes about the righteousness that is based on the law or the instruction and the commands of God that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now that is contrasted with the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. There's a contrast there. That doesn't mean Jesus and the law are at odds. That means the new covenant Jesus brings to give us righteousness through faith is different than the kind of righteousness that, frankly, can't be attained by doing and working and straining and and all that, okay? There's a difference. Romans chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Now we know, okay, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. So Paul, up front in the first three chapters of Romans, is really addressing the Israelite nations, or nation, singular, who in their arrogance and pride and ego and self-righteousness think they're better. And they're for sure in the kingdom and they're for sure children of God and they're for sure children of Abraham because they have the law. So what Paul is doing strategically is he's pulling the law out from under them and saying, you're not standing on anything because you don't meet the law. You don't meet the standard of God. So the law doesn't benefit you. It actually exposes you and hopefully points you to Jesus. And so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable or held accountable to God. Guess what? By works of the law, no human being will be justified. So guess what? There is now an impossibility. This, th there's no human in existence, apart from Jesus, 
There's no human in existence that can be justified by looking to the law and fulfilling that perfectly because no one's perfect. Jesus is though. So by your working and obedience, you will never be justified in the sight of God since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. Okay? Through the law comes a knowledge of sin. And this is going to be key. Let me just copy this real quick because this is going to play into later, like today later, not tomorrow or the next day, but, but today when we ask, hey, what's the purpose of the law? What's the function? What, what's God's intended purpose for the law? Well, part of that is that you would have a knowledge of your own sinfulness by looking at the law of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from what? The law. Even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. So there's another purpose right here. Uh, you know, let me just do this. For later, we're going to address this whole little section. So righteousness that is real righteousness from God comes through believing in the Son. By believing in Him. And the, actually the law and the prophets bear witness to that righteousness. And so the law was never to be an end in itself. So just to put that on the table, I know that like most of us, when we have these conversations, we're not thinking, hey, the law saves, okay? But there are Christians under the new covenant, or maybe people who think they're a part of the Christian uh, family. There are people who will say, yeah, the law doesn't save, but the Mosaic law in its entirety, as much as you can do, that tells you how to follow God. That becomes instruction and obedience and, and how, how you navigate life and how you live as a Christian. Okay, we'll get to that when we get to that. But for now, now that we know, okay, the law doesn't save, Jesus does. The law doesn't make righteous, Jesus does. What is the law? Like in the very beginning, what is the law? When you hear the word law or the Torah, Typically, the first five books of the Bible are in mind. The first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the first five books of the Old Testament um, is typically what people mean when they say the law. Um, I would like to take it a step further, and I think this is, this is helpful, um, <laughs> that the Bible Project actually will communicate it like this too. I learned it from them, that the law is instruction, in the form of commands and commandments and in the form of the, the first five books of the Bible. But if you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's actually narrative. It's the story of how God is working in the world with depraved humanity. And throughout those first, first five books of the Bible, and not just in the actual instruction, but through both of those things, the character and the heart and the ways of God are being revealed in an instruction in an instructive manner. It's an, it's a God is using narrative to reveal his ways and his character and his heart, right? So that when we get to the Torah and Exodus, when we get to the laws in Leviticus, when we get to all the different commandments God gives to the nation of Israel, right? It's not anything necessarily new in terms of who is God, because up to that point, we've at least seen a bit of who God is and how he works with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Noah and, and Cain and Abel and, and Adam and Eve. We've seen the ways of God revealed through the narrative of scripture. And then we have tacked onto that. Now we have in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, we have the, the commands, the instruction, the specific 
laws that God has for his people. Okay, so when you think law, don't just think pure commandments, do's and don'ts. Instead, think the law, first five books of the Bible, the way God communicates his heart and his ways in an instructive manner with underlying wisdom to lead people into the ideal. So it is instructive in nature. It is do this and don't do this for sure. But I don't think we should just boil the law down to that only because the Torah is the first five books of the Bible revealing not just the wisdom and the character and the heart of God, but I mean, the way that he intends to interact with humanity and ultimately, you know, predicting the Messiah. Okay, so, so the law actually instructs and guides people. And I'm going to show you. I'm not just laying this all up front. I'm going to give you scripture to back this up. But I just want to kind of give you like a little, you know, spark notes version of, of what the law is. Okay, what is the law? Well, the law instructs and guides people into God's ideal. Okay, the law reveals the wisdom and the heart of God. Not just in the instruction, but in the narrative that surrounds that instruction and the giving of the law. Number three, as we've already seen, the law exposes humanity's evil and darkness and inability. Number four, the law actually is going to distinguish Israel from other nations, sets them apart, leads them into a different way of life than the pagan nations around them, so that they reveal the ways of the God of Israel to those pagan nations. So they're distinct. They're the light and the darkness. And that's how Christians should function. Number five, the law points to Jesus, not just in a way where Jesus fulfills it and does it, but in a prophetic way where the law and the instruction and wisdom underlying the law and the narrative of the law, it's actually prophetically declaring and anticipating the Messiah. And so within the instruction, yes, we'll see Jesus do that perfectly and walk out those laws to a T. But also, there is underlying wisdom within those, those instructions and laws God's give, God gives to Israel. There's underlying wisdom that prophetically speaks to what Christ will do. Um, so, let me take you to Deuteronomy 29. Just so I'm not just, you know, spitting off wind for nothing. Deuteronomy 29. I'm going to give you a lot of Old Testament. We're just going to look at what the Old Testament itself says about the law. And hopefully we'll build from that. And hopefully you'll see that scripture actually supports that little spark notes version of the law that I gave you up front. Okay. Deuteronomy 29 verse 21. I need a sip because I'm running out of brain juice. 10 minutes in, I've already lost my mind. The Lord will single him out. Um, this is, let's back it up. <laughs> I just put the verse on my notes, not the actual passage. Okay, um, start in verse 17. You've seen their detestable things, referring to the pagan nations, Egypt specifically, their idols of wood and stone, silver, gold, which were among them. Beware. This is God speaking through Moses to the nation of Israel. Beware, lest there be anyone among you, man or woman, clan or tribe, whose heart is turning away today from the Lord to go and serve the gods of these nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, now here's the kind of person Moses and God through Moses is warning Israel of. One who, when they hear the words of this sworn covenant, they bless themselves in their hearts saying, I shall be safe, even though I walk in the stubbornness of my own heart. In other words, they have a false sense of security and safety. 
thinking they're okay if they don't obey God. They're not okay. They're headed for destruction. And God says, this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him. Rather, the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And his jealousy will, uh, and the curse is written in this book. I'll highlight this book. Because you're going to see this book of the law will settle upon him and the Lord will blot his name, out his name from under heaven. Okay? So there are curses written in this book, which Deuteronomy 30 verse 10 will confirm this is the book of the law. So verse 10 of chapter 30. The Lord will again take delight in prospering you to the nation of Israel, Moses speaks. Yoda I am, as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments, I'm going to highlight this for you, and his statutes that are written in what? In this book of the law. Okay? So the book of the law, per Deuteronomy, from the mouth of Moses, contains commandments and statutes. I don't think, and this is where I guess some of us will, do, will kind of differ in our understanding of the law. I don't believe the book of the law and the sum total of that can be restricted to just the commandments individually. Like I said, I think the law itself, uh, whether you use that interchangeably with Old Covenant, whether you use that interchangeably with Mosaic Law, the law that God gives to the nation of Israel, I don't think it's restricted just to the instructive instruction and commandments and statutes that Moses gives. Again, I think it has to do also with, not only, but also with, the way that God reveals his character and heart and ways through the narrative of the first five books of scripture, which complements the statutes and commandments God gives. They're not at odds. They complement, okay? So when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so there's a book of the law. Um, Deuteronomy 29 and 30 make it seem like uh, the law, or the book of the law, uh, refers to the way Israel is supposed to function as the chosen nation of God. So Israel is unique from every other nation. God has chosen Israel as his portion, his inheritance. Okay, Let's just go back in human history. He's working with Israel to bring about the Messiah and to ultimately bless the nations and bless the whole world through the Messiah. Before we get there, God chooses Israel. Okay, And when he does... He gives them a unique opportunity and calling to know his ways, to have the tabernacle among them, um, to have the laws, to have the priesthood, to have the, the book of instruction and commandments, to have all this, okay? They're uniquely set apart from the surrounding nations. And so, um, essentially, the book of the law is given by God to the nation of Israel to say, hey, since I am your king and you're a theocracy under me, and you're my nation. Here's how you function. Here are the instructions. Here's think of the think of it as like a, the constitution for Israel. I think is is a helpful way in our modern understanding of making sense of that. Okay, Deuteronomy 31. When Moses had had finished writing the words of this law in a book. Okay, so Moses writes down what God told him to which he calls the words of this law in a book to the very end. Okay, when, when he finished, Moses commands the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, 
He said, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. Now what's interesting is I'm pretty sure, and I got to verify this, that um, that the Ten Commandment uh, tablets were in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Hebrews 9.4. Let me just look real quick. I didn't think about this. Okay. So Hebrews 9 says, behind the second curtain was a section, a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. That's interesting. Now, I read an article earlier that when you read Hebrews, when it says it was in the ark, uh, where is it? In which, uh, I guess, according to this scholar, I didn't really actually look at this in depth, but he says that the Greek word there can actually mean, it actually means at which place. Like literally, when you, when you read it in the Greek, it means at which place. So it can be translated in, but it also can be translated just in the general location around, in the same location as. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily mean for sure it was in the ark. It could have been around it, could have been next to it, but it's in the same location. The, the reason I bring that up is because if indeed the ark of the covenant did contain the Ten Commandments on the tablets... It's interesting to me that Moses says to take the book of the law and put it on the side of the ark, not inside of it, but the tablets, the instruction, the actual 10 commandments are put in the ark, whereas the book of the law is put on the side of the ark. I'm not sure what that necessarily means. I'm just pointing it out. Okay. Um, Moses says, take this book of the law, put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may be there for a witness against you. So I guess that's why the book of the law is placed next to the ark so that they can know when the high priest goes in that that, that book of the law actually stands as a witness, right? Um, so Deuteronomy 31 right here makes it sound like um, the, the words of this law that Moses writes in a book puts next to the Ark of the Covenant, stands as a witness um, against Israel. Uh, Deuteronomy 31 makes it seem like the law is, the, is to function as the terms and the conditions of the covenant. Like when you sign the terms and conditions that you never read, when you sign up for a phone plan, and T-Mobile's like, yeah, just sign the terms and conditions. You're like, well, I've been here for four hours already, so I'm not going to read this. When you, when you sign that real fast, there's a lot you probably missed <laughs> right there and see... You know, in small writing, and I've, I've had that happen, man, where they call me four months later and they're like, oh, you have a bill for about 500, and I'm like, I don't, $500? I'm like, oh, you didn't read the fine print? I'm like, rip your fine print. But the point is, this is to function in that same way. There, there, there's an agreement. There are a set of terms and conditions that Israel has agreed to, which are contained in um, the book of the law, okay? So the book of the law, essentially, the law of Moses, is to function for Israel as this. Hey, Israel, here's what it requires of you 
for God to dwell in your midst, whether that's in the tabernacle, whether that's in the temple. Think of the law as the constitution for Israel, as the terms and conditions, as here's how you function with God as your king. Do you agree? So there's a covenant that they agreed to. They did say, yes, we agree to all the words that are written in the book of this law. Okay. Um, let me show you something else. Exodus 34. And all we're trying to do today is make sense of, hey, what is the law of Moses? What is the law? Okay, because some people will emphasize a part of the law and say that is the entirety of the law. The way you would refer to a car uh, by the wheels, you know what I mean? Well, the wheels are just a part of the car. When you say a nice set of wheels, um, at least in our modern terminology, you can be referring to the whole car, but it's still a part. And I think some people inadvertently do that with the law. And they talk about just the instruction. They talk about just the Ten Commandments. Or they talk about just the instruction for the Levites and, the, and that whole thing. And, and, and they're missing out on the entirety of the law because they're, they're hyper-focused on just a portion of it. And again, I don't think it's biblical so far to say that the law in its entirety can be boiled down just to the Ten Commandments. I think the Ten Commandments establish the words of the covenant and the agreement, the terms and conditions, but the law, five, first five books of, of the Bible, the Torah, actually goes not beyond that, but it includes more than just the specific do's and don'ts. Does that make sense? I'm not at all trying to say the two can can be at odds and the two are, exist you know, independently. They don't. They're not mutually exclusive. The Ten Commandments, the Covenant, the Mosaic Law, they go together. However you use those terms interchangeably. Exodus 34, 28, it says, Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. Best sleepover ever. He neither ate bread nor drank water. Do you know what he does? He wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant. The what? What are the words of the covenant? They are the Ten Commandments. So think about this. Moses up there, I believe this is the second time. Because he ain't coming down to smash stuff and, and, and just expose the Israelites. Uh, there's no golden calf. So I think this is the second time he goes up. But he does go up. And, and notice the language. On the tablets, what does he write? Well, he writes the words of the covenant, the terms and conditions, you might say, what the covenant is going to include and what it's essentially built on, which are the Ten Commandments. So in other words, the Ten Commandments outline the terms of the covenant. The Ten Commandments, I'll say it again, the Ten Commandments outline the terms of the covenant for the people of Israel. So there's a covenant made at Sinai. The people of Israel agree. God presents the terms. They do agree. Okay, Moses writes it on the tablets. Here we have the Ten Commandments. Okay, uh, let me take you to Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26. And again, I, the whole series is not wrapped up in today. Tomorrow we'll get to how does Jesus fulfill the law? What does it mean that he fulfills the law? What does it mean that we're freed from the law? We'll get to that tomorrow. Today, we're just building the groundwork. Because if you misunderstand what the law is, and again, I, 
I think I gave you a pretty good Sparknotes version. The law instructs, the law reveals the wisdom and, and the heart of God. The law exposes sin and humanity's evil and inability. The law distinguishes God's people from those who are not God's people. The law points to Jesus in a prophetic way. The law is uh, instruction and wisdom presented in narrative form. First five books of the Bible are not just do's and don'ts. Those are part of the narrative, not the entirety of the law. So um, Leviticus 26, 15, it says, back up to verse 14. If you will not listen to me and you don't do all these commandments, let's do this. If you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, whoa, then I'll do this to you. And God will go on to list out all the curses and all the consequences for the people of Israel that are like, no, forget the law, do whatever we want. We're free, right? No, freedom isn't loose and untamed. Freedom has to be contained. There has to be guidelines for how to enjoy true freedom. That's what God presents. Hey, now that you're free, here's how to live. Right now, now that you're free and out of Egypt, it's not just like everyone is just running around like chickens with their heads cut off. No, there's actual direction, there's clarity, there's instruction, right? So freedom is not at odds with instruction. It has to be a way to enjoy true freedom. So either way, nah, tangent for another day. Verse 14, uh, Moses speaking, God speaking through Moses. If you don't do these commandments, he says, that is breaking the covenant. I'll highlight it for you in yellow. So he said, so essentially not doing the commandments, statutes, or rules, which I don't necessarily understand the distinction. I just think it's a nut. There are sometimes where biblical authors will say the same thing in different ways, possibly to emphasize different dimensions of that same thing, right? I do this all the time when I'm teaching. I will say the same thing three different ways because at least one of y'all will resonate with the first way I said it. The rest of y'all might, you know, resonate better with the second and third way that I said it. So maybe that's what's happening here. He commandments, statutes, rules, synonymous, just different the ways of emphasizing certain dimensions of the, of the actual instruction. Um, maybe not synonymous, but for sure connected. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not making a statement on that. I'm just trying to show you that whatever it is to not do these commandments, statutes, and rules... God does say that is to break the, the covenant. So essentially, how many times did Israel break the covenant? If we're going to use legal terminology, when did Israel break the covenant? A lot, like from the very beginning. The very second they got the law, uh, Moses came down with the law. They were already engaging in a violation of the very first section of the law, which is how to relate with God. He's the only true God. Worship no other gods. Have no other God before you. They already broke that. So to not do the commandments, to disobey God, in, in, at least when it comes to the Sinai covenant and the Mosaic law, that is to break the covenant. Okay. I'm just trying to give you a category for, again, what is the law? Well, it's so closely tied to the covenant that the covenant is built on those terms and conditions presented in the Ten Commandments, instruction, and laws. And if you break that, and if you don't do those, you have broken the covenant that God established with you, Israel. Joshua 1.8 also tells us that the law is something to do. 
Now again, I know this isn't for everyone. People, some people are bored and tuning out. That's fine. You're going to reach a point in your faith and you're going to have a conversation eventually with someone that's going to drive you back to this sermon and at least still be here. For those that don't think you need it right now, that's fine. Maybe you'll need it later. But I, I know, at least in our Discord server, uh, every single conversation I jump in somehow gets back to this issue of, okay, but the law doesn't save us. What do Christians do with the Mosaic law? How do we relate to that? And we'll get to that tomorrow and Wednesday. This book of the law, God tells Joshua, shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So there are instructions written in the book of the law to do, right? There are instructions clearly outlined in the book of the law for the people to do. It's not just something to look at, like you're walking around in a museum going, oh, that's beautiful. You, you, you look at it and you go, hmm, I want to meditate on this. And then I want to live it. The law is something to do. But again, the law in its entirety, to boil it down just to instruction and to say, well, the law of God is just do's and don'ts. It kind of misses the whole point of God presenting his law in the form of narrative. Because what all these different laws are couched between are stories of Israel violating these laws or obeying these laws. And they're successful all throughout the Old Testament. But specifically the first five books of the Bible, when the law becomes this new thing that really hits the nation of Israel and, you know, hits the, God hits the ground running with his people. These laws and instructions are sandwiched between different stories in which the wisdom of those laws is really communicated in narrative form. Does that make sense? So, so it's, in other words, it's one thing for me, for God to say, hey, do this and don't do this. Okay. It's another thing for God to give a story about how someone didn't do that and the consequences that came with that, or how Israel did do that command God said to do, and it blessed them. So there, there, there comes a degree of wisdom and understanding attached to that command that God gives us through storytelling. That's why the first five books of the Bible are all about the nation's history, the creation of the world, all the way down to you know, before the judges start coming in. That's why, yeah, okay. So there seems to be, um, I want to be careful how I say this, and I'm really trying to discern whether I should go here today. I couldn't help but notice, okay, and this was completely new when I did this study. I'd never noticed this. I could not help but notice that both in the New and the Old Testament, there seem to be times where the Mosaic law and the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, seem to be distinguished or as if to be different ideas. I'm not saying they're disconnected. I'm not saying they don't have anything to do with each other. But let me just show you a few scriptures and I'm not gonna necessarily tell you what to think about this. I just wanna present to you scriptures that have caused me to rethink my understanding of the law as it includes the commandments. And I want to say it like that. The law of God includes the commandments, includes the instruction, includes the narrative that's sandwiched all around these different instructions and commands. Um, and it's written in a book. 
It's why we have the first five books of the Bible. That's why Moses writes down not just what God said to do or not to do, but he writes down what happened with Israel. So let me preface this. When I was reading, and I did a word study on all, every single instance, the word law or commands are used in both the Old and New Testament. Do you know how long of a study that was? So when I did that, I noticed that there is a distinction between the law and the commandments. And again, I'm not trying to separate at all. They're connected, but they seem to at least be nuanced, different ideas at times. Let me show you why, okay? Um, the Old Testament will say things like, uh, to keep the covenant of God is to obey his laws. So let me just say it like this. Uh, take it to Psalm 103, verse 18. And again, I'm not telling you what to think about this. I'm just giving you the, the data. That's all I'm doing. Because I, frankly, to be very honest, I don't know what to think about this. I don't. Uh, I don't think it changes our relationship with the law now that we're in Christ. I just think this is a, a fun study to eventually do. So Psalm 103, verse 18. Let's back it up to verse 17. I never want to jump mid-sentence. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Okay? His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So, Psalm 103, verse 18. Part of keeping the covenant of God for Israel under the, under the, the covenant of Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, and the, the law of Moses, part of that includes doing the commandments, which involves a degree of fearing God, right? Because you fear him, you'll do what he says. It's a healthy fear, reverence, respect, love. So, let me take you to Nehemiah 9, 13 through 14. Okay, I just kind of wanted to lay that out there. Nehemiah 9, 13 and 14. I'd never really noticed this in Nehemiah. Um, who's speaking here? I want to make sure I get this right. I want to say it's Ezra. Maybe I'm wrong. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled. Israelites separated themselves. They stood up and they read from the book of the law. So this is, I think Ezra is involved here. Um, for a quarter of the day on the stairs of the Levites stood these guys, then the Levites, these guys. <laughs> Bless. Okay, so the Levites said, stand up and bless the Lord. So the Levites seem to be proclaiming this. Uh, so when we get down to verse 13 or 14, seems to be them proclaiming this. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke with them, Israel, from heaven. And you gave them right rules. You gave them true laws, uh, good statutes, good commandments. Okay. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath. Okay. And you commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. So do, do you remember how I said sometimes, and maybe this is one of those instances where they're just saying the same thing a different way. I don't believe that's what's happening. I really do believe, and I'll, I'll show you more scripture why. I'm just trying to give you the data. I really do believe that when they're saying this, there's a distinction in the, in the mind from the law and the commandments. And I'm not trying to 
create an unhealthy division in your mind where you go, ah, law is different than commandments. I'm trying to show you that the law in its entirety is not restricted only to the commandments. The commandments, the, the commandments written on the tablets provide the covenantal terms, right? On which, of course, the, the law includes that. But again, um, I won't go where I was going to go with the Sabbath because I'm going to save that for Wednesday. Um, Nehemiah 9, 13 and 14. He says, right rules, true laws, good statutes, commandments. And he says, you provided them commandments and a law. So I'm just wondering um, if he's saying the same thing a different way. If he's making an all-inclusive statement when he says law and just goes, just to sum it all up. Or if he is kind of distinguishing between the two. Let me show you why. If you go to chapter 9, verse 29, it says, you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Okay, God warns Israel to turn them back to his law. Yet they acted presumptuously. They did not obey your commandments, but they sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Wouldn't obey what? The commandments. So, many years you bore with them and you warned them by your spirit through the prophets, but they wouldn't give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. And then he goes on to talk about how merciful God is. The reason I bring this up is because God is warning Israel to turn them back to their law, his law. But instead, they refuse to. And part of what that looks like is they don't obey his commandments. And again, that's part of what it looks like. I'm not saying that's in its entirety them denying the law, but that's part of what it means to reject and turn their back on the law of God is that they choose not to obey his commandments. It's part of the equation. Nehemiah 10, it says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. They've separated themselves from the pagan nations to set themselves apart to the law of God. Their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Boop. That was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. Do you see that? Now that right there seems to be a clear indication to me that walking in God's law in its entirety seems to be somewhat distinguished from doing the commandments of God. Look at it. Just look at it. And, and again, all I'm doing, I'm not telling you what to think. I'm just presenting you the data and saying, look, um, he's saying, enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law right? That was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. Now you could say what he's clarifying here is what it looks like to walk in God's law. I would agree. I would agree that you need to give me practical instruction on how to walk in God's law. Well, do the commandments he's given. Do his rules. Obey his statutes. Obey him. But I also think that there's a reason this word and is here. To walk in God's law. And then there's another idea, which is and, 
observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. Um, Genesis 26, 4 through 5. This is what's said about Abraham before the law. Um, God tells Abraham, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. I will give to your offspring all these lands. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice. Well, I think he's talking to Isaac here. There was a famine. Uh, and Isaac, okay, he's talking to Isaac. My bad. I retract that. He's talking to Isaac. My B. Okay, I made a mistake. God's talking to Isaac. And he says, in you and your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham, your father, what did Abraham do? Well, he obeyed my voice. He kept my charge. He kept my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, again, you can argue that he's saying the same thing three different ways. Commandments, statutes, laws. I personally haven't done a study on, on if there's a difference between those three words that are used. Maybe y'all can do a quick little search on uh, Google and look, hey, is there a difference between statutes, laws, and commandments? Because I am noticing a pattern where the laws or the law of God is somewhat distinguished from the actual commands found within the law. Again, uh, to, to use a helpful modern analogy, the car, if you have, you're looking at a car, the tire, the wheels are part of the car. But the car is not the wheels. Does that make sense? So I don't, so if, if the car represents the law in its entirety, I don't think we can say the law is just the commandments. The commandments are part of that covenantal law and the terms and conditions. But I do believe there's more and it has to do with the character and the heart of God being revealed and the instruction of those commands being revealed through storytelling, through the narrative God uses in the first five books of the law, the Torah. The Torah is instructive in nature, presenting wisdom, guiding, commanding, um, but also using stories and using the history of Israel to do so. So uh, Exodus 16, 28, just to give you like another scripture. Again, this is just all that I found. Exodus 16, 28, the Lord says to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Um, is, is, Mo, is, is God necess unnecessarily repeating himself? Like if you say, I got to go to the bathroom and the potty. Well, the same thing, you weirdo. Go, go potty. Um, or is there an actual category for these two things almost being, of course, one and the same? But is there a, a slight delineation? Is there a nuance to this where the laws, commandments, aren't in their entireties perfectly uh, synonymous? Like, can I use the law, the Torah, synonymously with just the commands of God. I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. Um, Exodus 24, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain, wait there. I'll give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I've written for their instruction. So no matter what, the law and the commandment are instructive in nature. So is the law uh, going to be the terms and conditions uh, the Constitution, while the commandments present the individual instruct, instructions and commands within that law, possibly, possibly. Um, I, I will say, tell you this, and I wrote this down to remind myself to say this. Whenever the law, and, and again, I did a search. <laughs> 
There's 569 instances, I believe, or something like that, of the word law used in, in both in the Old and New Testament. I looked at law, I looked at laws, I looked at commands, I looked at commandments. I did a very thorough study. So whenever the word law is used that I came across, that word law, which in the Hebrew is going to be Torah, as opposed to commandment being mitzvah. Okay, there are different words in the Hebrew. Um, but when I came across the word law, Torah, it was almost always used to refer to things uh, regarding uh, the temple or the priesthood or civil laws within Israel as to how they're supposed to function um, as a theocracy. As opposed to the word command or commandment, which is going to be uh, mitzvah, when I saw those words in, in the Old Testament, the word command or commandment was paired with interpersonal relationship conduct. Meaning, and again, I don't want to make the ceremonial laws and the, the dietary laws not an issue of morality for Israel, but I will say whenever I saw commands or commandments in the Hebrew Bible, it had to do with the actual Ten Commandments, the actual doing of those things. Um, and so I, I was going to do a, like a quick list of where in the New Testament there, that distinction is made too. In other words, I'm not just building something out of nothing. I, I don't really don't think I'm, you know, making a mountain out of a molehill here. I, I think there's something to this. Because the same distinction between law and commandment is actually used in the New Testament and seen there too. In other words, the word for commandment, which we're going to look at, in, in the Greek is entole. I think I said it right. E-N-T-O-L-E. The word for commandment is entole, um, which refers to an order or a command or an ordinance. The word for law in the Greek is going to be the word namas, nomos, which refers to the custom or the general divine law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah. But even within the Torah itself, it seems like that can be broken down into specific categories. In other words, here's, I think, what I'm trying to say. There are lots of people who do not believe there's biblical precedence to make the delineation in the law between ceremonial, civil, and and the actual Ten Commandments being the moral instruction, the way to love. There, I've talked to lots of people who don't see that delineation. And I, I'm just saying, as we build from this, I think we're starting to see how the biblical authors present to us and how God presents to us that delineation, even if it's not in explicit terms where it's like, here you have the civil law and the ceremonial law. I, I think there's precedence to at least start to see the beginning of these categories forming. Um, so in other words, the law, the Torah includes the Ten Commandments. But I don't believe the law is limited to only the Ten Commandments. That doesn't mean there's extra biblical commands that, well, I can add to it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, again, it has to do with the first five books of the Bible, how God presents his character and his ways in the form of narrative and all the stories that are couched within these specific laws and instructions, those matter too. Those are part of the law, the covenantal terms, the way to function as the people of God, the, the constitution for Israel, however you want to sum it up. The 10 commandments outline the covenantal terms. What I was saying was that in the new Testament, there is also that distinction I was making in the, the first half of the video um, or the first half 
of this video, which is two parts, I was saying how in the Old Testament there seems to be a slight delineation between commandments and the law. And um, so Matthew 19, 17, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and goes, what do I need to do to uh, inherit eternal life? And he goes, well, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good if you would, if you would, um, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Okay. Remember how I said when commandments is used, typically and most often, it's referring to the Ten Commandments. Which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, commit adultery, steal. You shall not bear false witness on your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. The young man goes, I have kept all these. Shouldn't have said that, buddy. You're about to be exposed. Um, so I just wanted to show you that, um, for instance, in 1 John 5, 2. And again, maybe that delineation isn't there in, in Matthew 19. The more that... I lost my train of thought since the internet went out. What that is mostly emphasizing is the fact that when commandments is used, it is referencing the actual 10 commandments as opposed to the Mosaic law. In other words, 1 John 5, 2, it says, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments, then he'll go on to say, well, the, command, the commandments of God, they're not burdensome, right? they're a blessing, they lead us into life. Um, that seems to be different than uh, other places in the New Testament that will speak of the law as being something to be set free from, as being something that penalizes and exposes. And it's good, but it can't save. So I think 1 John 5, 2, not speaking to the Mosaic law in its entirety, but speaking to the Ten Commandments, I, it, I think that's more clear to me. And maybe I didn't make my case strong enough. Let's just keep going. I'm not just trying to eisegete a bunch of texts. These aren't just a bunch of proof texts to make my point. Romans 13, 9, it says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. See the commandments? When the word commandments are used, typically what to obey, what to do, is the actual Ten Commandments written on the tablets of stone, as opposed to the law of Moses in its entirety. In other words, uh, these passages that I've looked at, Matthew 19, 1 John 5, Romans 13, it doesn't speak to the Mosaic law in its entirety as something to obey, but the commandments. Uh, the one who loves one, verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled what? The law. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery or murder or steal or covet or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. In other words, when we talk about love being the fulfillment of the law, it's more appropriate to say that, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying maybe it's more accurate and precise to say the Ten Commandments specifically outline the way to love, not the entirety of the law of Moses being the priesthood, uh, laws and the temple laws and the, the clean or unclean laws and the dietary laws. Like when, when Paul, for instance, is speaking to, Hey, love one another, love your neighbor. The uh, love is the fulfillment of the commandment. The commandment can be summed up in this word. The commandment being referred to as synonymous with love is the 10 commandments in particular. So I do believe that there is precedence to say the law of Moses in its entirety, 
can be broken down into subcategories, that being the law of love and outlined in the Ten Commandments, not necessarily outlined in, uh, I don't know, the, the priestly Levitical laws and the washings and the dietary laws. I don't think it's... I think when the nation of Israel was doing those things, they were, of course, loving God. And there was a vertical love, okay, for sure. But was that a horizontal love for each other? Possibly. But I think love is more, not to put them at odds. Again, I'm just trying to show you that when commandments are used, and let's keep building this case, let's go on. Commandments, the word used in the Greek being uh, entole. Entole, something like that, I'm sure. Uh, it's referring to the actual Ten Commandments. Uh, Luke 18, 20. Again, the whatchamacallit, the uh, rich young ruler comes up and Jesus goes, oh, the commandments are to not commit adultery, not murder. He does it. In other words, when you see the word commandment used in either the Greek or even in the Hebrew Bible, the word commandment doesn't seem to be often paired with things such as uh, dietary laws, uh, Levitical priesthood duties, uh, temple laws, unclean, uh, clean kind of, you know, proximity laws and issues of, you know, physical uncleanness. The word commandment isn't usually found in that context. And I'm not telling you what to make of it. I'm just saying there seems to be a biblical uh, reason, okay, that we can say the law of Moses can be broken down into subcategories. Because I've talked to people who say, no, there's no delineation. I don't know. I don't know. Matthew 22, 38 uh, through 40. You got the, I think it's the scribe, teacher, a lawyer. Okay, a lawyer comes up to Jesus and goes, hey, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Or the great commandment in what? In the law. So the law contains commandments. The law is not synonymous with commandments. In other words, again, the law in its entirety is not boiled down or restricted only to specific commandments God gives. The commandments are in the law. They're a part of something bigger. They're a part of a package. And the law as a package includes commandments, but the law, again, in totality, is not synonymous with only commandments. So the law contains commandments, and there's a great commandment. And he said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your mind. You know, this is the first, the great and first commandment. A second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let me say it like this. If love is the fulfillment of the law, or the commandments in particular, right? Then let me say it like this. If I'm not doing, if I'm not... Uh, obeying the dietary laws. If you're someone who thinks, yeah, the dietary laws of Israel apply to new covenant believers today, then let me ask you this. Am I not loving people by not adhering to the dietary laws of Israel? Or let's say it a different way. Uh, am I not loving people by not holding to the feasts of Israel found in the, in the Torah? I would have to say, I don't think that's a violation of love. I think if you violate any of the Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery, don't lust, don't, uh, which is included in that, don't steal, don't 
uh, cheat. Don't lie. Uh, don't have any other gods before him. Don't covet. All those different things, okay? Don't murder, obviously. I think if you violate one of those, you are violating the law of, of love. And so I don't think Jesus is not saying that the law and the prophets, the entire Hebrew Bible can be summed up in love. I do believe he's saying that. But I think more specifically and precisely, what outlines love for me and for the new covenant believers and the people of God are specifically the commandments God gives, which tell us how to love, don't murder people, as opposed to the law of Moses in its entirety. That doesn't necessarily outline the perfect way to love. I think the commandments more specifically found within the law of Moses for the people of God outline the way of love. And that's why he says on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, so no matter what, um, to love is to fulfill the law and the prophets. That's what Jesus does. And that's what the law and the prophets are mainly about is loving, loving. Um, let me show you one more thing. For those of you that are like, I don't, I don't believe that the law of Moses can be broken down into subcategories. That's fine. Uh, if you're not convinced yet, first Corinthians seven nineteen. I thought this was interesting. Um, Paul says, look, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now, hold on. I thought circumcision was a command that God gave to Abraham and, well, his chosen people. Was that not a command of God? It was. So why does Paul delineate between the commandments of God now for the believers in Christ under the new covenant, why does he delineate and distinguish between the commandments of God and circumcision, which at one point was a commandment? Why is circumcision not lumped into the commandments we now do? Apparently, there is a biblical category for things. It doesn't mean they're not true anymore. It means they don't apply. They don't have their place. Their purpose is different now that Christ has come. It's still true. Circumcision is a true thing. You know, God gave that command to Abraham. That was a covenantal terms and agreement kind of command. So I'm just trying to show you that there's, there seems to be biblical precedence when I read the scriptures for things that used to be commands at one point in human history, which are no longer applicable or fit under the category of commandments of God anymore because Christ has come. So now, circumcision fits under something else. In other words, I am keeping the commands of God, whether I'm circumcised or not. You're keeping the commands of God, whether you're circumcised or not. And, and again, that's why I said commandments of God can be distinguished within the law of Moses. There was the, the covenant of circumcision. There was the command for the people of Israel to be circumcised. Yes. So if the Torah, um, include circumcision. And now Paul says, well, that command that used to be a command for Abraham and part of the Torah, that's not a part of keeping the commands anymore. Then we should go, well, are, is there anything else that fits under that category of no longer commandments of God for his people in the season of human history under the new covenant? But they used to be commands for the people of God. Is there anything else that fits under that category? And I think we'll explore that uh, both tomorrow and Wednesday, okay? 
So I, there seems to be when the words command or commandments are used, most often you'll find that it actually applies to the moral Ten Commandments of God. When you see the word law used in its entirety, um, mostly law is actually referring to the things of, uh, I don't know, uh, what did I write down? Law will refer to things of the temple or clean or unclean laws or dietary laws or laws for the priesthood or laws for the tabernacle and how to how to disassemble that and when you leave and and when God calls you to another place you know those kinds of things are often surrounding the word law in both the Hebrew uh, Old Testament and the Greek New Testament so the question then becomes why why and if there is a category for things that were laws that are no longer applied laws for the people of God in the new covenant, then we just have to ask what else fits under that category. So the second question we got to answer is, Hey, I think this is the last question. What is the purpose or the function of the law? What is the purpose or the function of the law. Why did God establish it? What is its intended purpose? What is it supposed to function as? Okay, hold on one sec. Um, just had to type out something. So, this is what we need to establish. What is the purpose or function of the law? Why does God give the law? Well, Jesus obviously saw himself as fulfilling the law and the prophets. Um, in other words, we know that according to Matthew 5.17 and Luke 22.44, which we'll get to later when we talk about Jesus fulfilling the law, we know that the law actually exists to achieve its desired end in Christ. In other words, the, the, the law of Moses has an intended completion and fulfillment in Christ. Well, look at what that means, okay? We'll look at what it actually means for Christ to fulfill the law and not to abolish it. Even though some scriptures make it seem like there's a degree of him abolishing. And what do we do with that? No matter what, Jesus fulfills the law and he does the law perfectly and he meets that standard for us. But also, the law prophesies of Christ. Which I think we already saw... Um, In Romans 3, verse 20, which we can go there again just to show you. I'm not pulling this out of thin air. Um, it says, The righteousness of God has now been manifested apart from what? The law. Outside of your adherence to the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So what do the law and the prophets bear witness to? Or... There seems to be a predictive element to that. Prophesy, you might say. What are they declaring? What are they prophesying of? What are the law and the prophets predicting? Well, Jesus, who is the righteousness of God, will bring righteousness to us outside of our obedience to the law. He will obey the law for us. That's what's beautiful. So that's part of the function of the law. 
when you talk about what is the Mosaic Law instituted for? Well, it's instituted to declare Christ, to predict and prophesy of the Messiah, and also to be fulfilled by the Messiah. Okay, the law also exists, as we saw with Israel, as the covenantal terms and conditions for Israel to function in relation to God. So since God is their king, since they're a theocracy, there are terms and conditions. There's a way they should live and function in this theocracy with God dwelling among them in the tabernacle or the temple. The law also exists to expose people's sin, right? Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And you go, well, that's not the purpose. That's just telling you what the law does. It's not telling you why God instituted the law. Okay. Now hold that. The law exists. And the purpose for which God instituted the law was to expose our sin, our evil, and our inability to meet his perfect standard. In other words, consequently after that, it'll point people to Christ. So the law does not just expose our problem. It points us to the solution. It, it is not the solution. Jesus is. So Romans 5 verse 18, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, even so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made righteous, or the many were made sinners, so by one man's, dis so, so by one man's obedience, as Jesus, many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. Huh? The law came into play, came into the equation to do what? To increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So part of the law increasing the sinfulness of humanity, or not even the sinfulness, but maybe our awareness of it and potentially our actual sinfulness, the law comes in to do that so that, right, grace abounds all the more so that grace might reign through righteousness. Um, 1 Timothy 1.8 It says, now we know that the law is good. No one is arguing whether the law of God is good. We know it's good. If one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, ungodly sinners, unholy, profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. So Paul writes to Timothy and says, look, the law is good if we use it lawfully. Here's how we know how to use the law properly. Well, the law is laid down not for people to feel good about themselves, for the just to go, ah, oh, yes, look how good I am. The law is laid down for the lawless and disobedient, which by the way, is every human being on the planet without Christ. So the law is laid down by God comes into play for the sake of those who violate the law so that they might become aware of their own sinfulness and God might, you know, rightly um, 
what's it called, judge those who stay in disobedience and rebellion and unbelief, and so God might extend righteousness through Christ. So here's another reason the law is put into play. Here's why God brings the law. Why then the law? So Paul's literally going to answer the question that we're asking. Why? Well, it was added because of transgressions. So when Romans 5 says the law came in to increase trespass, part of that means the law comes in because sin is already there. The law just comes in to shine a light on it into the darkness to show us what sin is until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary or mediator implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No way. But the law is different. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So let's say it like this. Part of what it means for the law to increase the trespass, or part of the reason, or part of what it means that the law is added because of sin, is that it actually imprisons, locks things up under sin. Locks everything, imprisoned everything under sin. Why? Part of the law's institution is so that, again, it locks you in a prison cell you can't get out of so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. In other words, it's as if the law uh, declares your consequence and your penalty, which is death, so that you are locked in a prison cell called death, and so that it magnifies the grace and glory of Jesus when he comes in as the only way to break you out. Um, now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. And we'll talk about what it means that we were held captive and we need to be free from the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law acts as a babysitter. You know, a babysitter just watches the kids until the parents come home, right? The law is just there, or the, the babysitter is there temporarily, right? The, the babysitter doesn't permanently for all time take care of the children, right? In the same way, the law is put in place to almost act as a babysitter and enforce the just penalty of our sin to lock us up under that sin in hopes that when Jesus comes, we would want him to set us free. In other words, the law, I want to make sure I say it right, the law eliminates any possibility of being free from sin apart from Christ. The law makes Jesus or emphasizes the fact that Jesus is your only hope. So there's a sense in which the law points us to Jesus by first exposing our sinfulness and our need for a savior. So the law is instituted or given by God, not to show the people just how to function, but to show them how they can't do that. So they rely on him for righteousness that he gives through faith. Romans 7, 7 
He's another good scripture to go to. It says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? No way. Yet if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. Hmm. So part of what the law does is it defines sin appropriately for us. Gives us a knowledge of sin. Shines the light on our evil. So we don't live in the darkness. For I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. Right? So Paul looks at the law, which is good, by the way, as something that just exposes an issue. The law is like an x-ray that a doctor uses and goes, see this problem? You have a cancerous, you know, growth on your right here. You see right here? And then the x-ray becomes something that makes the problem evident. That's what the law does. The law makes our problem very evident. So that you realize, I, I can't meet the law. I can't meet his standard. I, I can't get into the kingdom. And God goes, perfect. My son can get you in. I don't want you to look to the law. I don't want you to look to your obedience. You're supposed to see your inability and your hopelessness apart from Christ so that you rely on my son. So in closing, I think it's helpful not just to go, hey, how do we see the law in relation to salvation, right? What, what is the law from the very beginning, right? Or, or, hey, you know, what is the purpose of the law? But also, how does the New Testament sum up the law? Well, Matthew 7, it says, whatever you wish others would do to you, do to them. This is the law and the prophets. In other words, perfect love for fellow human, regardless of age, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of economic status, regardless of their offenses against you, treat others the way you would want them to treat you. Whatever you wish they want to do to you, do that to them. Imagine yourself in their shoes. How would you want to be treated? Well, you'd want to be loved. So demonstrate perfect loved people. The law and the prophets are summed up as love. Matthew 22, 36 to 40. Again, we read this earlier. The teacher comes up to Jesus and goes, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he goes, well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. So he not only, he literally looks at the Ten Commandments and goes, that first one is the greatest of it all. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can break the Ten Commandments down into the first half being all about how to love God. And then the second half, how to practically love people, which is love for God for sure. You're loving God by loving people. But how do I practically relate to my fellow image bearers of God? The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, the entire Hebrew Bible, the entire Old Testament can be summed up, not just in the person of Christ, but as love God, love people. That's what Christ does. That's what I will do in response to his love for me. Let me take you to James 2 and then we're done. I know this is a lot of scripture, but we need clarity on what the law of Moses is before we can ask, okay, what's, what's the right, uh, how does the law of Moses fit into my 
Christian life, right? Before we can answer that, we have to know what the law is. So James says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. So the entire law, the entire scripture can be summed up. Love your neighbor as yourself, which assumes loving God first, which assumes first that you've received his love for you because you love him only because he first loved you. And that's it. That is the first part of this series, this three-day series. Think of it like a conference. You just come, come to a three-day conference on your computer, on your phone, tuning in digitally, and you get to hear all this. So this is the first session on this series I've called, What About the Mosaic Law? We know how we should see the law in relation to our salvation. We know what the law has been from the beginning. The law instructs and guides people into God's ideal. The law reveals the wisdom and the heart of God, right? The law is a reflection of God's character. The law exposes humanity's evil and sin, points us to Jesus. The law distinguishes God's people from those who are not his people. And the law points to Jesus in a prophetic way and to be fulfilled by Christ. So, um, tomorrow... In the next session, we'll look at how does Jesus fulfill the law? Like, what does that mean? Uh, we know how he does it. He lives, he dies, he resurrects. What does it mean that he fulfills the law? And then we'll look at what does it mean that we're set free from the law? Why do we have to be set free from something Paul already said is not a bad thing? The, the law is good. So why do we need to be set free from it? And everyone has their thoughts. And we'll get to that, okay? And then in the, in the last session on Wednesday, we'll talk about, okay, what do we do with the law of Moses now? And what law do we operate by if not the law of Moses? Is there something else? Um, and then we'll talk about what about the feasts and the dietary laws and Shabbat, the Sabbath? Hmm. Everyone has their thoughts. Well, I uh, think that's it for today, guys. Go ahead and do me a favor. Um, go and visit AboveReproachMinistry.com. You can find out everything about this ministry, all the free stuff we have. And uh, yeah, go enjoy. That's all I'll say. And I'll see you guys tomorrow, uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right. You guys have a good day. Keep moving towards Jesus.